Welcome to the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. This is a podcast about understanding other people and understanding ourselves. You can learn more about it at behavior-podcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave me a rating on iTunes. That's much appreciated. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Zach Elwood. If you want to send me a small financial thank you and encourage me to do more work on this podcast, that's Zach, Z-A-C-H, Elwood, E-L-W-O-O-D. Like many people who become interested in psychology, one of the roots of my own interests is that I've suffered from psychological problems. In college, midway through my sophomore year, I had to leave school due to mental health issues. If you're interested in hearing more about that, I talk a little bit about that in a March 2021 talk with Nathan Feiler about schizophrenia, psychosis, and mental illness. I also talk about some of my own issues in an interview I did with Scott Stossel in April of 2021. Scott wrote a book that was both a history of anxiety as a condition and a memoir of his own struggles with it. I found existential psychology ideas to be helpful in making sense of my own struggles, and I have an episode about existential psychology that's an interview with Kirk Schneider from January of 2022. I mention all of this just to tie together some of the psychology-related research and episodes I've done, if you're interested in those subjects. I've had some people tell me that my episodes about anxiety and mental illness were helpful to them due to them having some similar experiences, so I thought I'd promote them here. This episode will be a resharing of an interview I did in August 2020 with Nagin Rizai. We talk about her 2019 research which used machine learning to find speech patterns in young adults that were correlated with a lighter schizophrenia diagnosis. The paper about that, which was published in Nature, is titled A Machine Learning Approach to Predicting Psychosis Using Semantic Density and Latent Content Analysis. Okay, here's the interview with Nagin Rizai. In this interview, recorded on July 10th, 2020, I interviewed Dr. Nagin Rizai, a psychiatrist and psychology researcher. In 2019, in the journal NPJ Schizophrenia, Dr. Rizai and her colleagues Elaine Walker and Philip Wolf published a paper entitled A Machine Learning Approach to Predicting Psychosis Using Semantic Density and Latent Content Analysis. In that paper, they described their work using machine learning to analyze the spoken speech of young people considered prodromal for psychotic symptoms. Prodromal in this context means showing some behavioral indicators that are associated with later schizophrenic or psychotic symptoms. Their machine learning algorithm was able to predict with high accuracy which of the subjects would go on to develop psychosis. There were two indicators in the subject's speech that they found. The first was that the subject's speech had low semantic density. In other words, the subject's speech did not contain much meaning word for word compared to more normal speech. The second indicator was that there were a greater than normal percentage of words pertaining to sound. For example, a subject talking about hearing whispers or voices or really any auditory related word. We did have some technical difficulties during this interview, so my apologies for the audio problems. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and review on the platform you listen on. It's much appreciated. Okay, here's the interview. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Zai. Sure, it's a pleasure. Very honored to have you on here. Your work is very interesting. I've been reading multiple articles about it. Let's start out with, um, if you had to sum up in your work, uh, this work in a few sentences, how good was the algorithm at, at predicting uh, future psychotic schizophrenic episodes? 
This algorithm takes into account two important features of um, schizophrenia. One of them is poverty of thought, and the other one vague or implicit reference to voices or abnormal auditory perception. Having these two uh, variables in the equation, we get an accuracy of 93% in predicting um, schizophrenia after a two-year follow-up. And how young were the subjects? These patients were mostly teenagers, and um, that was the goal of the Naples study, a North American prodromal longitudinal study, which is a nationwide um, program across seven sites. And they follow up young adolescents who have the genetic pool for developing um, schizophrenia, most early because of the fact that they have a relative with schizophrenia, a first-degree relative. The goal is to follow up these uh, young individuals when they're very young so that they can follow them up and um, consider as many variables as they could. So were these patterns that the algorithm found in these uh, subjects, were these things that a human could find or notice, or were they too subtle for, for humans to notice them? That's a very good question. Yes and no. For this specific population, no, because they're at prodromal or um, very, very early stages of um, becoming psychotic. So the signal is too vague and subtle for um, a human observer to appreciate. And the yes part goes to the fact that once it becomes full-blown schizophrenia, then the clinician will be able to observe those because the patient will clearly talk about auditory hallucinations. But it becomes much more tricky when it is like years before the frank psychosis. Right. I see. A, I saw a quote from from you in an article about it where it said you had said uh, trying to hear these subtleties in conversations with people is like trying to see microscopic germs with your eyes. The automatic technique we've developed is a really sensitive tool to detect these hidden patterns. It's like a microscope for warning signs of psychosis. So, yeah, that that's that's interesting. And, and now I guess we can talk about the specific the two the two specific indicators now and and what those actually look like so maybe first you could talk about the the semantic density uh, pattern and how that actually sh uh, shows up and how the algorithm would detect that so semantic density broadly speaking um it basically measures poverty of thought so we as clinicians or i during my residency had a lot of experiences where I talk to a patient maybe for about an hour and the patient really talks so there is no paucity of speech but by the end of the one hour interview uh, I realized that I understood nothing I got nothing like it boiled down to nothing at the end of the um, conversation even though they talk and that had shown to be a very uh, difficult um, quality um, to be measured. So this algorithm tries to uh, measure it. Um, the way it works is that we first need to turn words, which are qualitative uh, measures, into something quantitative. In order to do that, we use some of the 
techniques that are out there, different types of language models developed by various companies. The, the one that we used uh, was uh, developed by Google, a language model called Word2Vec, which basically transforms words into vectors. The way it works is that, I'm just talking about how Word2Vec uh, Word works, is that it takes um, as input a very, very large corpus of language samples. Usually they use Wikipedia. For our case, we used New York Times, like 25 years of New York Times. And then they just measure what word usually accompanies the other one. For instance, for bookcase, the word that is usually is accompanied by bookcase is book rather than uh, toad or frog. So um, by just um, measuring how uh, probable it is for two words to be together, they develop a multidimensional distance in such a way that words that appear together a lot more frequently would be much closer to each other in comparison with words that rarely co-appear. And the words that are closer to each other, if there are a lot of those words, that's a lower semantic uh, value or density. Is that correct? So we're getting to the semantic density. So this is just how the algorithm that Google, uh, the net language model that Google developed works. So they right. just, so they turn like large samples of text into a big, big space mm -hmm. that words that are closer together appear together a lot more frequently. That's what it does. You can, you can connect these words through vectors together from one word to the other, just like whatever vector is from, you know, a point zero to point one, you can draw a vector. From any word to another word, you can draw a vector. And, and, then, and, and vector in this sense just means like a, a distance from something. Is that, is that correct? It is. And it also, you know, has other properties of like a vector. It has like a direction. direction. And that's correct, exactly. And you can add them. So technically, each word would be, would be associated with one vector. It's, a, it's very nice because when you have words as numbers, you can do whatever you want to do with them. Like you can add them. Like if in a sentence you have got five words, you can add all the vectors, the numbers associated with each word in that sentence. And that big number would uh, represent that sentence. And there are so many uh, properties of that space, the credit, all the credit goes to Google that developed it, you know, when you subtract them or um, when, what if two words are, par like the vectors of two words are parallel to each other, what does that mean? It seems like it keeps some analogy to it. Um, so, um, so there are some properties that even the developers of the space were to vec did not expect that to happen. So, but after analyzing the space, they, they found all these cool properties. So we use that space in order to measure semantic density. What we did is we added all words in a sentence for all participants. So we had a big vector called the sentence vector. It's the, it just adds up all the um, word vectors associated in each sentence. So let's say you want to break number five. There are different ways to just break it down. Five can be one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one. I hope I said five. <laughs> or you can say... Close enough. Yeah. 
Plus one. All right, one more. <laughs> or you can say two plus two um, plus one, or you can say two plus three. Um, so there are different ways to do that. The same thing with the sentence vector. It, when we try to break it just like the same way as we break a number into its like components, uh, it's just a rough analogy, not a perfect analogy, but I just wanted to say like um, we add them and then we can um, see what parts created the original sentence vector. If a sentence is too impoverished in content, the number of components that make up that sentence are a lot lower. Just the number is just fewer fewer vectors associated mm. with that vector. When a sentence is very rich and informative, when you break it down, you get a lot of, a lot more component or meaning, what we called in our paper meaning vectors. So by just counting them, when you break up a sentence vector, how many meaning components you get, it, it turned out to be a very good predictor of future development of psychosis. And in order to get a sense that is it re are we imagining that it is measuring thought, uh, content, or richness of a sentence, we, we ran this on Amazon Turk. We asked uh, numerous uh, judges just to read a sentence, just give a score to it in terms of like how semantically rich that sentence is. From zero to 10, they just picked, you know, a number based 10 being like the, the richest sentence. And then we correlated that with what we got from our algorithm and the correlation was significant. It was just an indirect way of showing maybe it is actually measuring what it's supposed to measure because sometimes you, you think that it is doing that job, like checking validity. Is it really doing that? So this is one way, not perfect, but one way to make sure that or be more certain that um, it is measuring semantic density. So uh, for a real world example, you know, one, something I saw in one of the papers about your work. Uh, so one sentence that was an example of a, of a low semantic density was sometimes things are things. So basically a very vague, you know, ambiguous, low, low meaning sentence. And then the sentence for high density, an example was view the latest news. You know, both, ha both of the sentences have four words but one is clearly more it contains more information and so that maps over to yeah what what you were talking about with the the vectors going in different directions and, and different distances from each other yeah. exactly and they, these are very good examples the two components that we think uh, explained the effect where the, the specific choice of words how specific the words are for instance thing it's a very it's a non-specific term. So that sentence had a low semantic density for two reasons. One, the selection of the word itself, thing, versus news, for instance, which is a more specific term. And also redundancy. It seems like that algorithm was very sensitive to redundancy. Things are things. So you see a lot of redundancy, which happens in schizophrenia. Again, this, this needs to be tested separately. This is just an intuition, what's going on, that um, their thought patterns seem to be a little bit circular. So they just do not move on from where they are. It seems like they're stuck in a place and they say same thing over and over, sometimes different words for the same concept or sometimes the exact same words. So all these parameters result in a lower density sentence. 
Now, uh, one question I had reading this was, you know, schizophrenia is kind of a general term and it's been criticized a lot. It's, it's kind of a classification that includes a lot of different behaviors. Was there any finding about like specific categories of schizophrenia or, or types of psychosis that this was associated with, um, if, that, if that makes sense? Yeah, uh, we did not do that. And um, the main reason is when DSM-4, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, this is the main um, textbook for psychiatry, and there are different versions. Usually there are some, you know, big philosophical changes from one generation to the other. From four to five, not much philosophical thought or consideration was going on, but like um, making it more clinically relevant. Um, in DSM-4, they had these subtypes of schizophrenia and uh, like the disorganized one or par- paranoid one, different types. Um, but with time, they just, um, the researchers or clinicians um, realized that there is not much value in such um, classifications. So in DSM-5, they dropped those classification and they thought that this is just, you know, an extra step that does not help that much in terms of like section of treatment or, um, you know, other clinical variables. So they just dropped it and they felt that um, it's best not to go with classification. At least the ones that they were using mm. in the before were not the helpful ones. Maybe in future there is a better uh, system of classification, but since then, according to the most updated ones, there was nothing there. We didn't correlate it with different types. Gotcha. So for the purposes of, of this study, when you said it was correlated with later um, schizophrenic symptoms, does, it, does that just mean that the subjects, um, they were basically diagnosed later with schizophrenia, however that happened? Is, is that accurate to say? Exactly. Okay. Usually, that is a, like a categorical uh, phenomena, like um like they develop like frank auditory hallucinations or you know it's um the nice thing about it versus depression that you are not quite sure it's a, it's a lot more explicit um so it's like a state change um so we we use that state status change as a, a measure of conversion right so while there may be yeah there there can be discussions about the different categories or or symptoms but long story short these these subjects develop some sort of psychosis some sort of psychotic episodes exactly right exactly um so uh i one question i had about it was the for the semantic density was uh why was uh, print like new york times or reddit used as the comparison for their uh spoken speech as opposed to using some samples of spoken conversation good question for this we needed a a very very large corpus and for another project i am using uh, spoken language samples but it's like one-tenth or maybe one-twentieth as large as um, the New York Times or Reddit. So larger sample sizes give you more accuracy. And um, I would say the answer is because we do not have such a, in comparison, such a, a large corpus of transcribed spoken language Makes sense. Yeah, I, I'd imagine it'd be hard to find uh, a lar- a very large sample of consistent uh, language. 
Right, there is one called Switchboard that I'm using their project, uh, which is good, but again, it's not even comparable. I think when I said 120th, it's much less than that. I should have like a, um, a real number for you, so I should avoid giving you numbers without making sure that it is the case, but I know that uh, just different order of magnitude in terms of the size. So something I saw, uh, a sentence I saw was, uh, the result. The results suggest that the best indicator of conversion during the prodromal period may not be poverty of speech, but rather poverty of content, as measured by semantic density. Could you talk a little bit about what the difference is between poverty of speech versus poverty of content? Sure. Poverty of speech, which does happen in schizophrenia as well, but m maybe not early on, is just not talking enough. Ah. It gets to the point of becoming like mutism, that the patients may not talk at all. Uh, it's just how much people talk. Um, that can be measured as simply as just counting the words per minute, if you want to get a rate, or uh, how many words per sentence. All of these have been reported. This is because it's a very easy variable to measure just counting. So, but it becomes challenging when, as I used that example earlier, that the, that the individual does talk, but there is not much meaning there. Mm -hmm. Then we call it uh, poverty of content. A quick question I just had was when you, when you said the, the study was involving these um, a database of people who might have you know likelihood of developing schizophrenia, I, I assume that was balanced with like a completely healthy control group too, right? Like as an equal number of people basically. As far as the design of the study, since the outcome was conversion to psychosis, um, it was not, so in normal individuals, we do not expect the, the conversion to psychosis. Um, oh, I see. So you were, you, were studying, you were studying only, it was only the prodromal uh, population and then seeing which of them converted. Exactly. Oh, I see. Exactly. Okay. exactly. I see. Gotcha. Yeah, let's talk about the sound-related speech, the other indicator that you studied. Can you talk a little bit about how you made the, found those patterns? That was uh, my favorite part of it. So in, in psychoanalysis, for instance, the patient is encouraged to just talk, free associate, just talk, just sit down, relax, close your eyes, and talk as much as possible. And then the analyzer tries to interpret, which is very subjective and um, the other problem associated with that is there are very few motives there that um, you know different types of complexes that the psychoanalyst tries to project those few assumptions onto what the patient says so it's very subjective it's very limited so that was the main problem so but it is always interesting like what is the hidden message of what a patient is talking about. Is there a way to just extract something that is implicit? So that was cool. And I liked that, that you may talk, I may talk for like half an hour. And then what is the predominant concept in what I just talked for like half an hour? This is um, what we called like um, implicit content. And the way we measured this was actually pretty simple. If you go back to the idea of sentence vector, that if you add all the words of a in a sentence to have a sentence vector, we just measured what word would have the 
highest cosine with the sentence vector. Cosine is not just in our study, but in vectors, like if two vectors have high cosine, they are very similar. For instance, um, two synonyms have a very high cosine, maybe like 0.8, but words that are very irrelevant have a cosine of like 0 0.1, 0 0.2. We wanted to see of all the words available in English, which one has the highest cosine with each of the sentences of these individuals. I think that was a very creative part of the, the study. And we just mapped them in the figure in the, in the article. You can see it's about like different things. And it, to some extent, reflects, you know, the interview itself, uh, because in that specific interview, they're asked, like, when did that start? When did you notice this? Uh, when that stopped? So you see in that figure, there are a lot of like words in months, like November, December, or days of the week, or, you know, time of the day, just because it was about the, the interview, the nature of interview required. But there was something that appeared, for instance, like months appeared both in converters and non-converters, because they're both asked about time. But something that appeared in converters and not in the non-converters was just a big space and that was so resistant like no matter what we did that population of words always appeared chant whisper or voice itself and i like the word whisper a lot because none of the individuals who converted to psychosis actually used the word whisper they just use sentences that when you do the cosine relationship, you just find that it has a high cosine similarity with the word whisper. That's the reason why I like whisper a lot, because uh. it is not a thing that a clinician would notice. So it's just, you know, extracting a lot of concepts. I think majority of the words that uh, I listed there, they did not appear in the actual text, but they were just the summary. Similar, of similar words. That, or exactly. Phrases. Was that sound related language? Was that something you looked for or was it something that showed up when you were analyzing how the vectors showed up? Yeah, so it was totally data driven. We didn't, so the, the first variable semantic density, we call it like hand engineering. We were targeting a specific variable and we tried to, it was more like a theory driven approach. But for the second part, uh, Implicit content was data-driven approach, meaning that we just let the data decide what words have the highest uh, cosine similarity with the sentences. Wow. So, um, yeah, we're surprised that, like, we just looked at it, and I was like, oh, my God, it's just all about voices. And knowing that you know, auditory hallucination is so, uh, one of the predominant features. Yeah, it's, it's that's really interesting because you would think, you know, it could have just as easily been a theory that you had, but the fact that it was data-driven pretty amazing it just popped out of the data right it was absolutely data driven yes wow. and, and how did that show up I'm, I'm curious how like how does the algorithm how does the program present that to you does it say like there's a a group of words over here and then you have to dig into it manually or does it just pretty much just show you the the word the types of words that no, it, yeah it generates so it gets all the possible words as input it just tests you know with each sentence of an individual it just runs uh, like a this uh, cosine similarity and then rank order like based on a list of like what ha what word has the highest similarity just goes down it's a large base of words but we just um 
since it is ordered on the uh, basis of the cosine similarity, we started with ones with the highest similarity, which I think for this case was the word voice itself. Voice. Oh, I see. Interesting. And whisper presumably would have been down up there somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Top five. And to give an example of this, there was an example language um, speech here uh, where a subject said, quote, you know, I talk to myself, but I don't, I don't know if it is me. I mean, I, if I talk to myself in the mirror, you know, I'm talking to me, but how can I have a conversation with myself? I say stuff in my head as if I am talking to me and it's funny and I laugh like I didn't know that I was going to say that, end quote. So that's an example of, uh, you know, something with a few different talking uh, words or um, talk to myself, I say stuff. So that's just an example of the kind of speech there. Exactly. And I love that example. That's why I picked that one when I was listening to the, uh, the, the interview, um, because it's just by itself, it's an amazing phenomenon that that patient also talks about, like his brain talking, uh, saying some jokes and he laughs at them, a new joke that he has never heard. Like the, his mind creates, it's like there's like a split brain. That's where the word schizophrenia comes from. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there was one part that creates all these new jokes and the subject himself has never heard. Mm-hmm. So where does that creativity come from and the novelty come from? Also interesting too, because it seemed, it seemed pretty low semantic uh, density too. It was a lot of, you, you know, I talk to myself how can, uh, I, as if I'm talking to me. It was a simple idea stretched out into many words, basically. Exactly. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Yeah. But not to say that, you know, like you said, like, I don't know if that means anything, me noticing that, because like you said, it was the algorithm is noticing things that are too subtle for, for me to notice. So maybe that's just me uh, reading into it. And that's not it, it would take a larger sample size, probably. Right. To. To say that, but that was, you were right. Yeah. I mean, you were right because um, there, as you said, like it is kind of redundant saying the same thing over and over. So you're right in that regards. So maybe using studies like this, we as clinicians become more cognizant or more sensitive to detecting these things because redundancy is not necessarily or explicitly listed as something to look for. Maybe from now on, as clinicians, we start doing that. I think you made a very good point about that sentence. It is redundant. So. Yeah, that's what I wondered too. You know, it, I wondered how much of this you could use, you know, uh, in not- in trying to notice things. I mean, it, it, like you said, it, there probably are some things you can notice over a good sample size, but then it, then it's also like it might be hard considering, you know, some of the if you're talking to teenagers who have a tendency to <laughs> ramble on a, on an, a lot anyway. I don't. Know, there might be some some challenges there. <laughs> Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You found that pattern, and I and I wondered if were there other patterns that you found, or that you think might be there in this kind of speech. And do you think it points to like a future where you can use machine learning algorithms to do basically psychoanalysis, where they find patterns in speech that indicate certain you know emotional problems i know i just asked like two questions there but uh no no no. yeah sure sure um i can answer both um they're they're very related um yes i think this is just the beginning of exploring what machine learning can do i like the data-driven approach a lot more because it is the most bias-free and a theoretic way of approaching the data 
when we decide on certain features um, in psychiatry, it is based on experience. We think, okay, parameter A and B are the best predictors, but usually these are like intuitive assumptions. They're good, they may work, but what if there are things that we never imagined? So I always like to be surprised, like, oh, I never thought about this. So data-driven approaches allow these types of discovery, but both things can be done at the same time, both approaches. For instance, there are you know, measures of like, it is known that patients with schizophrenia have very tangential way of talking, meaning that they go on a tangent, they never come back to the point. This is very easy to measure using these algorithms. It's not even machine learning at this, you know, this, this particular part where you just measure how they drift by measuring the cosine similarity of the vectors again. Going back to your second question about psychoanalytic approaches, yes, there are better models. Um, Vortebeck was developed in 2013. Now we're in 2020. What I found uh, to be very difficult is to catch up with um, um, the pace of the developments in, in uh, natural language processing, NLP. Dr. Philip Wolf, I would like to give him the credit, who you know is an expert and he always looks for the most, most updated version available at a time that we were doing that analysis. Similar work used LSA, uh, latent semantic analysis, which was an old one, and he thought that this is just too old to use each generation. Now it is less than a year. Like within a couple of months, you just get a new, absolutely new generation of an NLP model. And the way it works, like they just report CS people, computer science people, just list the accuracies on various measures, like how they can measure grammaticality, how they can measure sentiment analysis. So they give numbers, and if you just look at all, they're, they're all publicly available. If you just look at the accuracies, they're just going higher and higher. So we did, the reason why I mentioned all these is that the more recent uh, language models have used some transformers, just like an architecturally new types of uh, neural networks, and they can do automatic summarization for you. I haven't tested those, but they might give you a good way of summarizing what a patient says in a few sentences or in words. Mm. All this makes me imagine some sci-fi future where you go in and talk to a uh, machine and then spits out a uh, some things to do to help you i think it's very possible i think my goal is to do that to have an app ask the patient to talk get a consent hit that button patient talks for 15 minutes and by the end of it just like the way they put you know the electrodes on your chest to get like ekg show you like different types of arrhythmia or different measures of the electrical activity of uh, your heart. By the end of talking, I want to have several parameters, like how logical it was, how coherent it was, what was the emotional load, and just give a number for each of them. Right. It's, it seems like there's so many things you could study, like the number of anger-related words or the you know number of sadness-related words, things like that. Yeah. Exactly. You just have a number by the end of that. Yeah, instead of just because the the problem with psychiatry, and I'm a psychiatrist, so uh, I always had this 
criticism about the field is that why it is not quantitative in when we compare it with other fields. And I don't think it's because psychiatry is behind. I think it's because the brain is so sophisticated when you compare it to any other organ that it is harder to have numbers associated with each concept. Uh, we should be at the same time very cautious about all these parameters because machine learning is such a strong tool that it always finds a solution for you, almost always. So we should always be careful, like, uh, is it like a false alarm? We have to replicate these in order to make sure that what we're, you know, measuring is actually what we intend to measure. And, and that's why you use the Amazon Turk uh, workers to get a human um, perspective on on the on what the algorithm found totally yeah because um it just you just give problems to big neural networks and you know they're trained they have so many connections that one way or another they just solve the problem like now long time ago they were able to outperform human being playing chess now they're outperforming human people to uh, to play go which is a chinese game they say it's like much more sophisticated than chess because the, because of the number of layers associated. It can outperform human beings, so it can find solutions very easily. So we need to replicate, make sure that is a good solution and what we're looking for. So I was reading, um, I was actually reading a really great book, Hidden Valley Road, which actually, let me Google the author's name right now just to do him that favor. Hidden Valley Road by Robert Coker, K-O-L-K-E-R, uh, just came out this year was a, is a really good book about a family who had 12 children and, and six of the boys ended up with, um, you know, diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, but one of the th- theories it talks about in there was the sensory gating uh, theory of schizophrenia that people with schizophrenic symptoms basically over respond to sensory inputs. And uh, that one of the tests they use for that is actually an, an auditory one where they, you know, they give people a series of tones or, or sounds of some sort. And um, there's a correlation with people with uh, schizophrenia, you know, over responding to the the sounds after the first one more than than other people do in general. Uh, and I wondered if you thought that that kind of theory could relate to the the sound related speech that you found in your study. That's an excellent point. Excellent point. I have not tested it. This topic is relative uh, is relatively classic in attempts to explain auditory hallucination. So we kind of get adapted as we hear the same auditory stimulus over and over. This adaptation, like reduced response, does not happen in patients with schizophrenia. So one way that I'm thinking as a potential study, because Naples actually does have um, EEG, is just to, and, and there's a very, so they put EEG and then they measure for that particular, um, the sensory gating. They put electrodes and they uh, present uh, patients with different auditory stimuli. And then they, they, they look at a very specific component called P50. One way to test what you suggest that, again, a very nice idea, is just to do a very simple correlation between our words, like words with words like whisper, voice, chant, and the P50, and see if they've got um, a reduced uh, like a reduced wave or not. A very good point. Maybe it was not possible to do that before because there was not such measure before. Now that we do, maybe it's a 
good idea to do that. Previous measures have found correlation between auditory hallucination and P50 by just saying how severe auditory hallucination was, but they didn't have like actual objective numbers like this. So, mm. so that can be a potential future study. And uh, thanks for the suggestion. And uh, I was curious, I'd also read uh, somewhere, I can't remember where, that patients with schizophrenic symptoms can also have, uh, be more likely to talk about eyes and, and vision. Um, have you seen anything about that? And do you think that's also something that is theoretically, I, I guess it didn't get found in, in your uh, analysis, so maybe it's not um, an actual correlation. Yeah. So um, visual hallucinations are not as common as auditory hallucinations. Usually when there is a visual hallucination, we look for other features. Um, there are specific types of ethnicities that have more visual hallucinations than like auditory hallucinations. Rare, this is a rare phenomenon. Or sometimes it is drug-related. So it is not quite as classic as auditory hallucination. And... Um, in the graph that we had uh, in our paper, we reported whatever we saw. And I don't think we found visual. <laughs> right. And I was thinking not even just uh, visual hallucinations, but I'd also seen, you know, I, I, it's coming back to me now. I think it was that artwork by schizophrenic patients had a lot of eyes in them. You know, they kind of were obsessed with the threatening nature of people's eyes and eye contact. I kind of wonder if that might be findable too. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. I, maybe that, that reflects paranoia rather than right. visual hallucination. Um, so that's a good point. Yeah, uh, maybe it's just um, because they do feel like they're always being, being watched. Yeah, and then they have this uh, something that is called idea of reference, thinking mm -hmm. that whatever people on the radio, TV talk about is about them. So it's always like an eye watching them. So maybe it is a measure of paranoia. That's a good point. It needs to be tested. Right. I could, I could see it showing up as like words like, uh, they looked at me, they were looking at me, those kinds of, you know, right. speech. But I mean, that might be hard to find too, because looking is such a common word anyway. It may come later because we all, again, tested like patients um, at very early, early stages. It's not even mm. psychosis yet. So it's just two years prior to that. So maybe at later stages, they, uh, it is detectable. And a random thought too. It, it may, when we were talking about, uh, you know, having um, machine learning algorithms to do psychoanalysis, it's it's kind of a challenge with schizophrenic patients specifically because they often have those uh, paranoias about the controlling machine kind of mechanisms that are, are, are you know, Absolutely. some something controlling them. So it's like maybe you know they they won't always enjoy the the idea that. Uh, someone studying them with a machine somewhere oh yeah even without even like at a clinic that you know they they always think that there is like a, there is like a computer when they come to a clinic somebody puts a computer in their hands and to control them or some of the medications that they get through injection are some computers that are monitoring them so telling them that there's actually one computer observing <laughs> that would not be maybe leave that part out yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. We, we were just we were watching mad men and the the last season you know with the had that classic presentation of one of the characters being afraid of this new computer that they had got in the office you know when computers were a new technology and he became paranoid yeah. and he had started having paranoid delusions about it yeah. very common very common yep have there been um, practical applications with this technology yet, or are there starting to be? Or is, are some institutes or, or, or hospitals um, 
using this to keep an eye on people or is that maybe are there some ethical problems with trying to use this in a practical way I don't think there's ethical problem as long as the patient is aware of what is being done and what the purpose of the use of language is. If it is in a clinical controlled setting, it should not be a problem. The thing is that the first step, that if, if I want to, usually people like me, if we just move on to the next project, okay, now let's start and like, let, let's test it on another population or let's check in, in Alzheimer's disease. That's what we're doing. But if I wanted to do that, the first thing that I would have done would be to test everything on Naples 3, the other uh, generation of the, the, the next phase of Naples, uh, get language samples, repeat everything, replicate, maybe larger sample size and make sure everything uh, works in a reliable fashion and then use that you know, as a possible way to measure it as a clinical setting. But I would like to do other tests because this was like a, a proof of concept study. We need to do a lot more in order to you know, make it happen at the, at the clinical setting. But I think that's completely doable. We're not far from there. It's just you know, a group or maybe even our group to just redo things. But I am a novelty seeker. I just want to, you know, test newer ideas rather than repeating. But that's an essential part of science as well. So it'll happen one day. So uh, do you have any other um, research you want to talk about now um, that I think you said you were doing something with Alzheimer's? Was that right? Right. Um, similar idea of trying to predict Alzheimer's. Um, there was a very famous study that was done in the population of nuns. And then they were asked to just write things. They wrote essays. And then years after they were, they looked at who would develop Alzheimer's disease. And they found a relationship between this little study. So they used whatever measure, however they measure semantic density. At that time, they found a correlation, which makes a lot of sense with um, Alzheimer's disease. So I wanna know whether um, getting some data from these individuals, it's actually easier these days because people write on different platforms, um, Reddit or Facebook, Twitter, just trace them as far as possible and see if there are any indicators of developing Alzheimer's disease. That's what we're doing now. So I work um, at Dr. Dickerson's lab at Harvard University and uh, over the past two years of my fellowship there, which I recently finished, uh, we've been working on on that. So we're at the beginning um, stages of it. This has been Dr. Nagin Rizai. Thanks so much for coming on. Is there, if anyone wants to would like to get in touch with you, do you um, have a recommendation for that? Sure. My email, nagineresai at gmail.com, would be the easiest and most reliable way to go. Yeah, thanks a lot. Absolutely. I, it was a fascinating work, and thanks for your contributions to the, um, to the medical field. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. To learn more about this podcast, go to behavior-podcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave me a rating on iTunes. That's much appreciated. I also have a Patreon, and my handle on there is Zach Elwood. That's C-A-C-H. E-L-W-O-O-D. So if you want to send a small financial thank you and encourage me to do more work on this podcast, that's also appreciated. Thanks for your time. Music by Small Skies. Small Skies.